You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Garib Seamus. How are you? Doing great. Loving being here. No, thanks for coming on. So to start, take me back. You're four years old, huge comic book collection, decided to start one of the biggest organizations in the world. What, where'd you start it off? <laughs> well, it all started because I had three brothers and yeah. uh, growing up in a household, just I was born in Queens, but growing up right outside of New York City, we were just huge sports fans. And uh, that's when we got into collecting baseball cards at the time. And my dad would always bring home boxes of cards and we'd you know, we do all kinds of games to win these packs. And that really fostered, you know, our love of collecting and, and following that type of world. And so how old were you at that point when it started? Oh, got to be like six, seven years old. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah like, like it's my earliest memories are we, we would play pool and win packs for my dad. I mean, it was just... Uh, <laughs> And, and then, what, what, did, what drove your dad with that? Did he just think it was a cool thing or like, you know, why your dad chose to go that route? No, I just think that, uh, you know, he's a huge Yankee fan. Got it. And I just think that, you know, my dad was really amazing at coming up with ways to interact with us. Yeah. You know, you know I, I do find that it's parents have to learn how to speak to their kids the way they need to be, that way they want, the kids want to be spoken to. Yeah. And uh, my parents and especially my dad, when it came to that, was amazing at that. Like he knew that the way to our hearts was through baseball cards. So (laughs) that was his communication with us. Got it. And because I had three brothers, we would we'd flip these. We'd get cards and then we'd go to school and flip cards. Yeah. And my brothers and I, we had like a little racket going where we'd win a lot of cards. We'd come home. We'd start with we would start with a stack of 25 every day and then come home with 100 or 50. Sometimes we'd come home broke. But so we amassed this large collection. And that's when my youngest brother kind of took over our collection. I was going to say, where do you fall in the like the eldest, so to speak? Oh, I'm number two, number two? But, Got it. But, there's, but there's only six years between my oldest brother and, and my youngest brother. Got it. So, so we were all really close in age. When we went to school, we'd all be in the same school together. Does that make you all Irish twins? No, none of us. That's 15 months. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was 14 months between my older brother and me, and then eight months between us and then three and a half years. Got it. But it was nice. close. It was close. Yeah. And yeah. So, so once we started getting into buying and selling baseball cards, then all of a sudden we started going to stores that had comic books and then we started collecting comic books and that's really where you know all of a sudden our whole eyes lit up to wow there's this extraordinary world out there more than just the archie comics or the richie riches or things like that yeah and how old are you when you started the comic thing that had to be like around i was probably about 10 12 years old around then Got it. And so were you always buying and selling? Were you selling the cards when you first went in? Were you actually starting to make money off baseball cards? Not really. When we were kids, it was really just fun. Yeah. And that was when my youngest brother started getting into it in a big way. You know, he was now all of a sudden, he started having rookie cards from our years. And that's when all of a sudden, like, you know, Tom Seaver and Don Mattingly and Nolan Ryan and all those type of players really quite good and all started getting hot. And then all of a sudden he had all these cards and then he would trade our cards for more cards. Got it. And, and it almost became like this fun business that the family was involved in. Yeah. And, and then we started going to shows on the weekend and we started buying and selling. And that's when 
my mom got the bug to open up a sports card and comic book store when I was a teenager. And so you guys basically had the inventory to start it. <laughs> Is yep. that fair? Yeah, we had the inventory. Yeah. We knew a lot about the business. You know, we we had a lot of friends in that world. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, and the business was booming. So yes. it was one of those times where it just made it really easy. And involved. were your parents always entrepreneurial or was that like their first venture into it? They were always entrepreneurial. My dad always had his own businesses, you know, small, medium businesses, mm -hmm. uh, things that he owned. And so I always grew up with my dad coming home from work and being like, he never would say, oh, my boss sucks. Yeah. You know, it's like, it was always upon him yeah. to make things work. So I always kind of had that. So we always had that kind of mentality, even buying and selling in sports cards. It wasn't about, you know, you know, working for people. It was like, how do we kind of arbitrage or buy and sell this stuff? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And so you ended up working in that comic book store throughout childhood? Yeah, absolutely. It was after school. It was yeah. all the time. It was weekends. Is we this in Queens? Uh, no, this was in Rockland County, okay. right, right outside of New York City, right north of Manhattan. Got it. And yeah, my dad worked in the city at the time. And then we had the store in Rockland County. Nice. And so take me through it. Then you you do that while you're like high school age. Did you end up going to college or what, what happened next? Yeah. So I wound up going to college mm -hmm. and it was really fun. I went to University of Albany. Uh -huh. And what happened was because my mom had the comic shop, she would literally, you know, every few weeks would send me a stack of comics. And so I knew what was going on in the comic books. And because at the time... Comics literally were like 99 cents or a dollar a comic book. Yeah. Because with the store, we had like 60, 65% off discounts to buy them. So the comics only cost like 35 cents a piece. So, yeah. so even a stack of 20 books, even back then, was only like, you know, five, six, seven bucks. So when I was done with them, I literally would just give them out to everybody. So I was kind of known as like the comic book guy up there. Nice. And, uh, yeah, so that was really fun. And then also while I was in college, I used to work for the school newspaper and I used to sell advertising for them. And we were twice a week nonprofit. So I got really good at selling, but mm -hmm. also we made so much money as a nonprofit newspaper that we wound up getting Macintosh Apple computers back in the earliest days of desktop wow. publishing. So we bought like the first versions of Quark and Adobe and, yep. and the first laser printer that Apple ever came out with. So we would actually went completely desktop and we're talking about the late 1980s here. Yeah. So it was pre-internet and literally the first of the Apple computers that were desktop friendly. So it was very, very revolutionary at the time. So I became an expert, you know, on the Apple computers when they first came out. And then ultimately what happened was I graduated in May of 1990 and it was a very, very bad job market. So I literally moved home after school and couldn't find a job. So I started working full-time in the comic book store. Got it. And so, and your parents were welcoming you that? They understood? Like, were they always supportive of all this? Oh, yeah. My parents were always very supportive of us. They, you awesome. know, they, they always felt like as long as we were properly educated, we could do anything that we want. You know, yeah. it's one thing in life that no one can take away from you, yeah. you know, is your education. Yep. So they always felt like it was important to be well-educated. And also, they never really pushed us into any profession. It was always like, you know, get a great education, then whatever you do, you know, just love it. Yeah. And uh, it was this really amazing childhood that we had. And because it was all about comics and sports cards and things like that, <laughs> we really, you know, we, we really, it really was fun. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And so how long did you work in the family store? 
How did you end up so, sticking with that? So I was working there for a while, you know, a bunch of months, but I hated retail. I, I just yeah. did not like that business. I didn't like having to cater to people one-on-one. <laughs> but what I did have was I had a photocopy machine there yep. and I did have an Apple computer. Yeah. So that's when, you know, I decided that there was a lot of interesting things going on in that world where the comic book publishers would tell the stores what was coming out months uh-huh. before they came out. And again, this was all pre-internet time. So it's not like, so having a three month head start on the market yeah. was very valuable time. So yes. we would take that information, compile it into a printed newsletter yeah. and then run it off on the Xerox machine. And it was literally a Xerox machine yeah. and, and then staple it together and then hand it out to the customers that walked in. We would be doing hundreds of copies of this thing every week. And what would happen is everybody started buying more comics because we were recommending all the new things that were coming out, what was hot. And then back in the day, people would have us reserve the copies that they want. So we would have these reserve bins. And that, that part of the business started exploding. And the guy that ran the comic book side of the store was really funny knew everything there was about comic books. He wasn't like the comic book guy from The Simpsons? Uh, No, not quite, (laughs) not quite. But he was really, he he just had a really great, you know, sensibility for comics. Also, kid never graduated high school, but super smart. And and then we also had a lot of customers that knew everything about what was going on. A lot of kids in high school there. So, So what we would do is we also recruited kids from the store to contribute writing as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so between all of us, we were able to put together this newsletter yeah. and, and the name of the store was called the Wizard of Cards and Comics. So that was the name of the newsletter. And then that went so well that the next thing that we kind of got into was coming out with a price guide on what the prices of the comic books should be called. So I made this little kind of digest size booklet with thousands yeah. of prices in there. And I called it like the official guide and I mailed it out to- I would say, know, how'd you come up with the pricing? It was a combination of just seeing what was going on pricing in our store. Yeah. And then just kind of going to the shows and seeing what things were selling. Okay. For so you, you, did, you really did your research. Yeah. And then because it wasn't so liquid the way collectibles have become because of the internet, you know, prices would, people weren't used to prices changing on a daily basis. It was, right. it, it was this kind of lag time involved anyway. So people would, you know, check their mail every month to see what the new pricing was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And then there were market forces at play too. You know, things would sell out. So the next ones would come in at a higher price anyway. Yeah. So we would send this thing out. And then there was surveys in there that people would send out. And then I remember I got a, a nasty letter from Random House because <laughs> they called it the official. And they owned the word official when it came really? to, yeah, to price guides. Yeah. So that was my first legal letter I ever got. That's funny. Did you panic? Because I'm usually the first one you panic a little bit, and then you realize it's just part uh, of the course. A little bit, a little bit. But the but the resolution was just don't use that word. So yeah, right. it, was, it was very, it was, it was a cease and desist. Yeah. No, so I get it. It was very uh, easy to cease. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, so were you, were you selling that guide? How was that guide? No, working? it was all free. It was, okay. um, yeah, it was definitely something that, you know, it cost me a bunch of photocopy paper and a few yep. hundred stamps just to get that kind of feedback. And the feedback was great. You know, people really liked it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I felt like it needed to be more than that. We, I needed to do something that was more substantial, more national in nature. And up until that time, my dad was a big comic book art collector. So every time we would go to a show, like a comic book show, 
we would meet some artists and writers and things like that, but the artists would sell their art. So we had become friendly with a bunch of the really big artists in that world at the time. One of them was named, this guy named Todd McFarlane, who everybody knows created this character Spawn, but he's become very, very big in the toy business. He does a lot of the sports figures. He does all the Walking Dead. He does DC Comics now. So he's, he's done a lot of very big toy lines out there. Mm -hmm. um, and we've become friends with Todd throughout the years buying his art. And for my dad's birthday one year, we commissioned Todd to do a Spider-Man for my dad because he was the big artist on Spider-Man. Yeah. And he did, he did Spider-Man in a wizard outfit. And <laughs> so, yeah, so, so I wound up using that as the cover to the first issue of oh, wow. Yeah. So, and, uh, and then in that issue, we interviewed Todd and talked about all the things that was going out. So that was, so starting in, in the year kind of, you know, 1991, is when I incorporated, and that's when I started putting the magazine together. How many years I, from college to 91? I don't know when you graduated. Well, I graduated May of 90. So, okay, so it was just yeah, a year later. So you did. You basically worked on this stuff. You started the newsletter that year, and then a year later, yeah. you built this out. Awesome. Yeah, and then starting by the end of 1990 is when I started thinking about doing a magazine. And then when the new year started, it's like, all right, let's just do this. Got it. Uh, and then I put together my first magazine, and then we debuted a version of it at the San Diego Comic-Con at the time. And it was, again, it was just at that time, you know, back in 1991, you're, you're talking about the fact that there was maybe, you know, a few thousand people that attended, a yeah. few hundred exhibitors. It was only comic books. It was only old people selling old comic books on tabletops. Yeah. And when did Comic-Con start? When was the first Comic-Con? So there was two that got started yeah. Uh, near simultaneously, the one there was one in San Diego yeah, that, was, that probably cool. started 25 years prior. Oh, and wow. There was one in, in Chicago that had started maybe 22 years prior. Okay. Uh, so you're talking at that, so mid six, mid to late 60s was when yeah, Comic Con. Yeah, or early oh. 70s. But yeah, it was something, yeah, something around there. But again, Comic Con was just short for comic convention. It, it didn't yep. really didn't really mean anything. Right. It wasn't even like a brand. It wasn't right. anything that people think of today, right. you know, when they hear that word, yeah, uh, those words. So you launched there and what what happened? People immediately go, this is amazing and off to the races. Yeah. So I spent a lot of money to print a few thousand copies and I had them shipped there, like rush ship them. They were on a skid. Literally my booth was a skid of books yeah. <laughs> and with a sign in the background. And I was just handing out free copies to everybody that walked by. And, you know, it was, it was both incredible and demoralizing all at the same time, because there was a whole bunch of people that I think took it just to be nice to me. There were quite a few people that loved it. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a lot of people that were literally like, what do we need this for? And they would literally hand it back to me. <laughs> and, and it was like, oh my God, I can't believe, like, I'm giving you this for free. Like the whole world needs this, you know? Why would you ever give it back? It's like, I'm not, I'm not even charging you for it. Yeah. But I did go out of there, you know, with a pretty amazing sense that this was something that people wanted. And also the industry itself, the people in the business, yeah. they really loved it. You know, they were the ones that said, wow, you know, this industry needs something that, that really puts what we do on a pedestal. Yeah. Because up until that point, there was just some really, really bad black and white newspaper print, you know, things that existed out there, which talked about pricing or dealers. It was just, that looked like a newspaper. I mean, it was just nothing that represented the industry well. 
Got it. And so where'd you take it from there? Did you immediately go for distribution? What was the next step? Yeah. So what basically what happened was back in 1991, there was already a distribution network set up. Uh So there was a whole system set up for magazines and comic books set up into the comic book stores. So we, it was a big company called Diamond Comics. There was one called Capital City. There was, uh-huh. there was probably about a dozen distributors there that distributed to this network of about three or 4,000 comic book stores. So we went into those catalogs. We had sold through there. We sold about 30,000 copies of the first issue, which was amazing. But again, we got caught up in that cycle where basically people had to order months in advance before they ever saw it. So people, so the retailers were ordering the second and the third and even the fourth copies before they even sold through on the first one. So basically our sales started tanking. And even though everybody, all the fans started getting a hold of it and wanting it, the retailers just didn't have enough copies out there. So that's why by our sixth issue, we started going onto the newsstand where we started printing a lot of extra copies for newsstand distribution. Now yeah. that's what's called a returnable business. So that's now all of a sudden, you know, they can return copies that were unsold. Yeah. So little did I know how much risk I was creating, you know, for myself by doing that because we were printing a lot of extra copies mm-hmm. that would then go unsold. So then all of a sudden, basically by the seventh or eighth month into this thing, And we were just starting to lose a lot of money there because the comic book stores started now at this point, started selling some more copies, but not a lot. The newsstand was costing a lot of money to be there. Plus they had literally 180 day terms on their books. So I was just printing a lot of copies with not a lot of cash coming in. And that's really when like, I, I kind of had this heart to heart with my dad, you know, that, you know, it wasn't working and I didn't know what to do. And I remember one evening he came home from work and, you know, I I had this kind of one-on-one with him and I was like all ready to like break down and, and give up. And, and he wanted no part of it. You know, he's like, Garb, you just have to make it work. He, He didn't even like, there was no doubt in his mind about what needed to get done, which was just to figure it out and make it work. I almost wanted his permission to quit. Yeah, exactly. And, and he didn't give it to me. And then after that moment in time, I was like, wow, I I really got to figure this out. You know, where can we save? What's working? What can we reconfigure? How do we, how do we cut and how do we build into the areas? And then right after that, something uh, pretty miraculous happened, which was there was about seven artists that were at Marvel, including Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, guy named Rob Liefeld, Mark Silvestri, and you know, those were four of the seven guys. They were, they were selling millions of copies of their comics. And then they decided to leave Marvel to form their own company called Image, where all of a sudden they were going to start owning the characters that they created and not just getting a royalty off of Marvel's comics. Yep. And at that moment in time, Marvel and DC were probably 95% of the market. Like the independents were very, very small. Marvel and DC controlled the business. They owned all the characters. There wasn't kind of this rush behind helping people have their own rights or own their own stuff. The industry was very, very low on, on helping out these independent creators out there. And at that time, Marvel and DC were difficult to work with. I was 22, I think, at the time, maybe 23. I looked like I was 16 years old. They were difficult to work with. And all of a sudden, these guys that I'd been friends with 
decided that they were going to go out on their own. And again, it was pre-internet. It was like 1992 yeah. at the time, maybe 93. And all of a sudden they call me up in the middle of the night one night and they're like, Garrett, we just left. We just formed this new company. You know, we want, we want to work with you on this. They were out in California. I was in New York. I think I hopped on a plane the next day with a camera, took a picture of them and started mapping out how we're going to work together and get the word out there. And that was like, you know, that was a marriage made in heaven in terms of just us working together. They needed publicity. Yep. You know, we needed a great company to work with. We wanted, we knew the talent, we were friends. They just wanted to get out there. So those guys, we, we said, let's do covers, let's do interviews, let's really get the word out. And then everybody wanted to know what was going on out there. And we were the only source for that. It's just a testament to the cliche of like, the more you work, the luckier you get. Like yeah. you were doing all this so much that you ended up making these friends that when they did make a move, you were ready to take on that opportunity because you were doing it and you stuck with it. If you yeah. hadn't listened to your dad and had cashed out, you wouldn't have had that phone call. Absolutely. We were in the right place yeah. and, and then it became the right time. Right. And, and that's, that's what helped. And then our sales skyrocketed. Then I'm talking like, we started selling 100,000 and 200,000 copies uh-huh. a month. The magazine went global. All of our financial worries went away. You know, the money just came pouring in on that. And it, it was pretty a spectacular time, you know, as to what happened there. And your friends that started their own group, what comics did they end up coming out with? What was their, who are their characters? That would, anyone well, we would know? Yeah, well, the big one was Spawn that okay. Tyler Carlin created. Yep. They've got a movie now in the works, a second movie. Jim Lee had created a comic book called Wildcats, which ultimately became an animated series. And then Jim Lee's studio ultimately wound up selling to DC Comics, and Jim is now the publisher of DC Comics, and a great friend. And then uh, Rob Liefeld started a book called Young Blood, and uh, Mark Silvestri started a book called Cyberforce, and he built a really great business. And he's the his company is behind the movie uh, The Wall Wanted, and oh, um, you know, and and a whole and and you know a whole bunch of other you know really amazing properties out there. So yeah, so you know, it was it was a pretty amazing group out there. They wound up to becoming pretty prolific in the comic book world. And it was an incredible symbiotic relationship because we were all kind of in our early 20s, some mid-20s, and we just we just needed each other out yeah. there. You know, because we also, you know, I, I think also people were afraid to buy a non-Marvel or DC comic book. Yeah. And we also gave people in a way permission to buy it because you know, they knew that we were going to be there to support it, you know, and tell people that it's okay, we love it, you should too. Yeah, it's the third party validation we talk about in marketing, like that's one of the three pillars is trust. And if you don't have your own brand to stand on, you have to get it through third party, meaning like someone else has to give you that trust. And then there's I I always love pointing because it's some people know it and don't but have you ever watched how I met your mother? Yeah. So there's that line that Barney always gets Ted introduced, he always just goes, Hey, have you met my friend Ted? Have you met Ted? And it's his line. He says it even though the person doesn't know Barney, but it's like this whole like third party validation thing where they're like, oh no, hi, like, I don't know who you are, but you just validated him. People work that way. It's really interesting. So even if they didn't know your magazine, a lot did, but a lot didn't, you speaking up for someone else, that validation creates trust for both of you, frankly. Absolutely. Yep. And then they would just, they would use our magazines to open up the door for them. Hey, look what, look what Wizard wrote about them. And, And they would use that as well. And for many years, that's what a lot of people did, you know, mm-hmm. to get their product into the movie and television business. You know, we'd write about it. They'd take our magazine, hand it to the studios and be like, here, you see, you know, 
yeah. just got written up in this magazine that you know millions of people are reading. How long did you run the magazine for? The magazines, uh, we ran them for about 20 years. Oh, you did? Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. So, so you ran it, you said 90, like 91 to 2011, is that? Yeah, true? yeah, about 2000, uh, yeah, about 2010, yeah, around that range, 2011. And uh, what, what ended up happening? Obviously, it grew, it was a huge success, but what ended up happening? What took you out of it? So basically, what happened was in 2007 and eight, when the economy collapsed, mm-hmm. that became the toughest time in history for pulp magazine publishing. What happened was everybody pulled back on their advertising. That, that was the first thing to go. And then also, so paper prices went up a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, it was at the kind of at the birth of the iPhone and the, the iPad. So what was happening now is a lot of people were starting to get their content free through websites. Yep. And people wanted to not pay for content. And they would just rip us off. You know, so it became one of those things where it was very, very hard to compete with the, the magazines with what was going on, you know, in the online world. And there's just a kind of a, a, a unit economics, you know, when it comes to magazines where, you know, I think it would cost like literally 50 or 75,000 or $100,000 to make the first magazine. And yeah. then maybe it's like 48 cents after that. But, you know, it, it would cost a lot of money to at the time to to actually just print that one magazine and if the sales aren't there there's just yeah. nothing to pay for it so then it wasn't worth it to do it but but what wound up happening was back in the mid 90s you know what was going on was with the comic con space yep. and the convention side of things what was happening was we were getting much bigger image was getting bigger a lot of other upstarts started launching their companies but the old guard really hated the new the new guard the new the new people that were coming up they just didn't like the excitement we were creating they thought we were rebellious they thought we were you know trying to sell stuff that was garbage or junk or nobody believed it like like we were called every name under the book and yeah. it was an industry that that they thought that they were just rejecting us and they weren't letting us do the things that we needed to do because we were bringing a lot of new people in and yeah. they liked the old business so that's when I, I bought the Chicago Comic-Con. And, okay. that was, and I bought that in the mid-90s, 95, 96 is when I bought that. And at the time, it was maybe two, 3,000 people in a hotel. And again, it was just comic books. It was literally you know boxes of comic books on tabletops that people would just show up and buy back issues. And, uh-huh. and what I bought it more for a marketing expense more than anything. It, wasn't, it really wasn't a business. We really what, went in. What year did you buy them? In 96. Oh, okay. Got when it. it. Got completed. Got so again, pre-internet, there was no mass media around comic books or superheroes. Yep. None of these Marvel films were out the way they were they are today. Yep. And also at the time, being a geek or a nerd was a very derogatory term. Yeah. That was definitely being an outcast, a loser. You know, it was synonymous yep. with being an asshole. It was just like whatever you can ascribe to wanting to belittle somebody. Yep. Calling them a geek or a nerd was was the label that you could use, you know, to make someone feel bad about themselves. So when I bought the show, it was really a marketing. It was really how do we bring to life what we do in the magazines? So yeah. so yes, we sold booths to the retailers and we sold booths to the publishers and we invited all the movie studios and the television networks and the video game and toy companies because at that time we started writing a lot about those in the magazines yep. um, and building that audience. Yep. And at the time, also, we were 
selling, you know, I think around three, 400,000 copies a month. So the magazine was in 75 countries. It was global in nature. So we were really ubiquitous at the time, but there wasn't a live event that represented what we were doing. And that's what we wanted to do. So, so we ran our first event and about 10,000 people showed up. And it was and really- you said the, before that you had like two or 3,000, right? So yeah, you- before, Yeah. So, so we, you, was that because of your brand on it? Or was that because your execution? Do you think that- It, drove was, it was everything. It was the okay. fact that it was our brand. So everybody yeah. knew that we were doing it. They had to be yeah. there. We had a mic because we were able to advertise and promote it in the magazine. Yeah. Months ahead of time. We enlisted all the local comic book stores to sell tickets and we gave them booths and we got the, the whole local community involved. So we did every, and we we took out newspaper ads and we took out billboards yeah. and we did a lot of radio spots and radio promotions. And then everybody that the artists and the writers, everybody told their friends that they were going to be doing it. So it became a, a kind of a really great industry community event, but we were totally blown away when so many people showed up because that's when the whole kind of superhero movement galvanized. Really when, when all these people saw so many people like themselves that were into it, and then they realized that, wow, I'm not alone. This is okay. What I do is fun and fine. And, and that's really what got everybody to feel like, wow, you know, I, I love this. And, and it also, because it was in Chicago, a lot of people got to meet and see people that they knew, but yeah. they didn't realize that they were into it. Yeah. So it also kind of brought people together that knew each other, but didn't realize because everybody was afraid to admit that they were into it. Yeah. No, and that then, makes sense. And right. then what happened was we got, we encouraged people to dress up in costume and we gave them prizes for that. And then what would happen is once the event happened, we took a lot of pictures and then started posting that in the magazine. And because the magazine was global, everyone around the world got to see what was happening. Yep. And, and that's when things, the whole lid blew off of it. And then, you know, then San Diego took off, we took off. I mean, I think the next year we had 25, 30,000 people that showed up. I mean, it just, it started building like crazy. And then cut to, you know, background before the economy started going that in 2007 and eight, we, I think we had about three shows at the time. And then once the economy started going down, that's when all of a sudden too, Facebook was starting to gain a lot of popularity as well. And all these clubs were starting to be created and everybody was going digital at the time. Everybody was starting to say, oh, we need to put our groups online. We need to go right. online. Everything went that way. And we basically said to ourselves, look, you know, at some point in time, people are going to want to get back together again mm -hmm. in person. And all these groups in, that formed on Facebook, they're going to want to meet in person. So let's go back into the event business. Let's go deeper into that. So as the magazines were going down, you know, we, we doubled down on the event side of thing. And that's when I bought up probably about 15 or 16 Comic-Cons out there. So I bought a lot of the regional Comic-Cons that were out there, everything from ones in Florida, you know, Connecticut, Texas. I mean, just, you kind of name it, you know. All whatever. domestic or did you go all in? Domestic. Yeah, oh, there was one in Canada, one in Toronto. Okay. But yeah, just literally wherever we could find a local show that had any kind of traction whatsoever, we bought them up and kind of rolled them into, into what we call like our tour. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time things started to merge, out of the uh, bad economy in 2011 and 12 and then 13, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to get out again. 
And that's when all of a sudden, you know, we had the events. And then also 2010, 2011, that's when, you know, Marvel films started coming out, you know, yeah. with Iron Man. And all of a sudden now there was this massive interest in what was going on in this space. And yeah. we became the destination for people to go. Makes sense. And so how long did you stick with that business? How long did you run comic those Comic-Cons? Well, we were running them since 96, 97, right. all the way. So then the company that I had formed, you yep. know, by 2006, we had about 24 events a year, mm -hmm. uh, almost a million people a year through the door. And then I had, I had brought in some big investors into that business. And we definitely had a difference of opinion of where to go. <laughs> and, and then basically my brother and I left and then took a little bit of time to reformat, you know, what we thought Comic-Con should be. Because yeah. when we started it, it was all about being very inclusive, where we wanted to make sure anybody that wanted to partake in it or participate, that, that there was a place for them. Yeah. And it's gotten so big that they wound up becoming very exclusionary, meaning yeah. it would sell out. The panel, yeah. people wouldn't be able to attend because you know they would sell out. The toys, they do limited edition to toys that would sell out. So now people couldn't get the toys. So yeah. it wound up becoming a, a miserable experience. Yeah. because people would, would go and want to be involved in everything and then they couldn't. Yeah. So that's one thing that happened. The second thing that happened with how big the Marvel movies had gotten, they're all of a sudden, the celebrity side of it became really, really big. Yeah. And the, the people who played these superheroes became global box office stars. Yeah. So that's another thing that happened. The other thing that happened was there was this transformation from being into comic books to being into superheroes. And the people that liked comic books looked to disdain upon the people that liked superheroes. And- <laughs> Did not know it, that it, was a rivalry. Yeah, so it all, because they were there first and if yeah. it wouldn't happen unless they supported it, right? So, yeah. so again, it created this very exclusionary thing. And then the last thing that happened was social media, yeah. which was on like the idea of, of now Instagram was becoming, you know, the social media of choice. And all of a sudden what happened was autographs were the currency in the past for collectibles and meeting people. Yep. And now with Instagram, the currency became the photo op. Yep. The, the photo of the celebrity. Yep. yep. Creating that FOMO and that selfie and posting that on social media so that you could show your friends how cool you are. Yeah. And and my brother and I for years had had literally kind of commercialized the idea of taking a professional photo that celebrities can charge for. Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, you would really taking really crappy photos with a camera, you know, and then if you wanted to post it on social, it wasn't digital. And yeah. then, you know, the, the selfies were a disaster. People would blink and it was a, yeah. it would take up a lot of time. And, and then all of a sudden we were like, hey, look, we brought in a professional photographer for $20, you can get a picture with, you know, with a professional photographer, professional background, we'll give you a digital copy of it that you can post. And it was like a revolt. People would yell and scream at us, like, how could you charge for a photo? Until we then perfected and perfected it until it became something where like, wow, it became really valuable. Yep. So that took off. So yep. by 2017, my brother and I started a new company. When did you leave Comic-Con? 2016. Oh, 16, I think it's six. Got it. So you yeah. were at, and yeah. with Wizard Magazine, 
did you just shut that down in 2011 or what ended up happening? Yeah. Yeah. We wound up just shutting the magazines down. Uh, some of the other magazines were shut down in 2008, nine, then yeah. with, it was in 2010. Yeah. So those were out of business at that moment in time. Yeah. Um, you know, they just, they, they had a wonderful time and place, yeah. you know, and it just ran its course. Yeah. So, okay. So 2016, you leave Comic-Con next year, 2017, your yeah. brother and you get together and what happens? Yeah, we decided to figure out all the things that we loved about what we did and take all the things that didn't work, weren't fun, were very hard to do, uh, the things that the fans didn't like, and we got rid of all of that. And yep. all the things that fans liked, that we enjoyed, that made money, we kept all that stuff. And then the other thing that we did was, the other thing, in addition to all these social media things that were happening, live streaming started coming online. Mm -hmm. And... So that to me was like the breakthrough of how do we bring something like what we do to a mass audience. So we decided to do these boutique shows. And by boutique, I mean 10 to 25,000 people yeah. uh, with the biggest celebrities in the world and then live stream it all over the world on Facebook, Twitter, yeah. Twitch, YouTube, just whatever format we could do. We wanted everyone to see what was going on. And then that, that came out to a roaring success. The first celebrities we got were Gal Gadot, Henry Cavill, Jason Momoa from the Justice League. We got Chris Evans, Captain America, and Tom Holland. Chris Evans, obviously Captain America, Tom Holland, Spider-Man, mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of other like amazing Avengers. And so right out of the box, you know, we had this extraordinary uh, couple of events. We kind of set that whole world on fire, live streamed the events. And then literally within, within no time, we had hundreds of millions of people you know, checking into our content wow. to see what we were doing. And uh, yeah, so we were off to the races. And then ultimately, we wound up running seven events with Ace. We had an eighth event planned for March of 2020. Uh, so we all know what, what yeah. tidal wave of COVID hit us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to produce that event in Boston at the end of March. Mm -hmm. And so what's next? Like, you know, obviously take a pause for COVID, understood you can't have that. What do you think is coming down the pike for you? What's next for you? You've had a pretty amazing career so far. Oh yeah, thank you. So so what's next is basically we, we pivoted the company into doing private signings with the celebrities uh -huh. So at a time when it was very difficult for people to meet the celebrities. You know, they still wanted to get their Captain America shield signed or their Thor hammer yeah. signed or their Star Wars memorabilia. So we set up deals with the talent that people could at least submit their their stuff to get signed. Oh. And like they ship it in? Like, because you say private. Yeah. Okay. What we did was we had, we had we designated about 10 people in that business uh -huh. to, that people could ship to so that they can organize it, collect it, deal with professional handlers. Yeah, um, and then we set up a private setting where where people could now with a ten, let's say ten people, you know, bring all the stuff that everybody wants signed. Yeah. We bring the celebrity into that room, you know, gloves, masks, everything. You know, you know, obviously this was during COVID. Sign all the stuff, and then everything gets shipped back to the fans. So we've been very successful in being able to pivot and and do that kind of stuff. And now we're just waiting for things to open up again so that right, we can so you're, start you're running live events. I was going to say, so you're planning on opening it back up. Do you have any thoughts of when you think you're going to do that? We're not sure yet, yet okay. because it's one of those things where unlike uh, sporting events or concerts or Broadway, where the talent is here and the fans are there, you yeah. know, in our world, the talent and the fans are like this. Yeah. So, so we have to wait until the talent feels comfortable right. you know, meeting with the fans again. So we needed to get to a point where, you know, there was enough mass vaccination, you know, 
everyone felt comfortable again. You know, a lot of people became uh, germaphobes during this period of time. So we need to wait till kind of we overcome that. So it's funny. My my cousin's always been that germaphobe. Basically, everything we all adopted with COVID was stuff he did pre-COVID, and we all call them weird. Like right. I, if I'd sneeze around him, he'd be like, "What the hell? Like get get away from me!" And now I feel like everyone does that. Like he would pure, always have Purell on him, always wash his hands all the time, and I'm like, "You're just weird, man. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it." And then we all basically became my cousin during COVID, which has been a fun Absolutely. reflection. And that will that will linger. I you agree. Know, yeah. Is uh you know as much as people think that it's over with, or we've, we've yeah. been able to move past it, you know, that element of it won't. For yeah, most which I don't think is a bad thing. And so last question for me is for someone trying to pursue their dream or go after something or achieve at a high level, what's one piece of advice you don't think they normally hear? One thing that you've learned that you don't think enough people talk about? A lot of it is not, not to be afraid to fail, you know, and take chances. You know, yeah. most people are young enough where, you know, all can be forgiven or mm-hmm. it's, you know, and, and, and we live in a very forgiving society. You know, yep. in a lot of other countries, people aren't as forgiving, but mm-hmm. definitely here, we live in a country which is very, very open and forgiving for people that want to take a chance. People be very surprised that the more they're interested in changing the world or the more they're interested in doing something big, the more interest there is. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of joke that every time I try to do something small, I failed. It's only the big things that I succeed at because a lot of people want to be a part of that success and they want to be on that train and they want to be with you, you know, in that movement, you know, you can't be afraid to do that. And, and by failure, it doesn't mean, you know, having to take on massive debt and try something and mortgage your house. Like it's, it's really everything from just as simple as sending emails or text to people yep. that, that you want to work with, you know, what's the worst that happens? They don't respond. Okay. Yeah. You're and in the same spot you work. Exactly. Then you just work with the people that respond to you and take it from there. You know, I know that like when I first started, you know, I was asking Marvel and DC to do everything and they just kept saying no, but <laughs> I just worked with the companies that said yes. Yep. And until eventually I got to a point where they couldn't, they couldn't escape it. They couldn't escape me. Uh, <laughs> and then they had to work with us. Love the line. Couldn't escape me. Well, Garib, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Oh, thank you so much. Love being here. Of course. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.